Welcome to the Master Builders Podcast, the podcast where we discuss issues affecting the building industry. It's the podcast by Master Builders for Master Builders. I'm your host, Max Rafferty, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Robert Shaw. How are you going over there in Fortress Perth, Robert? Yeah, going pretty well, Max. Uh, very fortunate to be able to go over to Rottnest for the weekend, so uh, weather was great. So, uh, you know, you're not allowed to go on international waters, but it was a uh, overseas trip for us. Did you feed the quokkas? Did not feed the quokkas. You're not allowed to do that, but we got a couple of photos. Oh, good. Good. Well, I look forward to seeing the quokkas selfie. So obviously 2020 has been a pretty unusual year for all of us, but it seems like the building industry has adapted to new ways of working. How's business been in WA? Yeah, obviously at the start of everything, when it all started to unfold, it was a lot of unknowns, but I think the whole journey this year for our building construction industries, I guess, be adaptable and really sort of plan as much as you can, but being flexible with what's coming our way and that's settled down a little bit now and we're very fortunate in WA that the stimulus is nationally and state-based have worked very well over here and we've been fortunate that we haven't had uh, too long a lockdown so we're doing pretty well. So we know the industry is great at the technical side of the business um, actually building things. If you could go back in time Robert and give yourself one piece of business advice when you started out on your own what would that have been? I guess one piece of advice was obviously cash is king and make sure you uh, preserve the cash and as you grow your business and is don't put yourself too far in debt. So a business that's not too far in debt is in a good position to react and uh, sustainable. Great bit of advice. One of the great things about being part of the Master Builders Group is the opportunity to learn from other builders. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk all about things associated with the business of building with Jock Merrigan. Jock is the founding director of Urban Habitats and has over 20 years experience in the residential building industry. As an active member of the Master Builders Association of South Australia. Jock chairs the Housing Committee and is a member of the Council of Management. Jock is also a state representative for the National Residential Builders Council. Jock is passionate about building design and achieving quality construction outcomes that are unique to each of his clients. So for those people who don't know you, Jock, who are you? Please introduce yourself to us. Yeah, thanks, Max. Um, Jock Merrigan, obviously founding director of Urban Habitats. Urban Habitats is a South uh, Australian-based building company. I have lived and worked in South Australia for the majority of my life, albeit with some short extended vacations overseas where I did actually work overseas for a short term in uh, Manila, which was very interesting and very different. Pastimes for me, other than work, is sometimes always important because I think balancing work and life is critical. But farming, running, riding, um, mountain bike riding, road bike riding, dirt bike riding, swimming, fishing. Uh, and I suppose when I really think about that, it's it's a lot to do with the great outdoors. And, and I think the beauty of being a builder is you get to live a bit of both of that. You you get to be outside and and I suppose on those bad days you can choose sometimes to lock your way yourself away in the office. I have a wife and three uh, children, a teenage down to just uh, younger than teenage, teenager, and I suppose more from a professional sense. 
I'm actively involved in the master builders in South Australia. I chair the housing committee in South Australia. I also am a representative on the National Residential Builders Committee, but also maintain a very active role in the master builders because I feel that there's some really good cross benefits that I get from both the support that they give me and and, and what I can give back to them. Awesome. So when you're a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, isn't that a big question? My immediate one is farmer, funnily enough, and I think that was probably driven a little bit through some life experience that I had as a young kid, but it's always been a part of my life and to the extent now where one of my extra activities is going down to a farming property that we have. But the other one was architect, always had an interest in design and and, and certainly still do. Right. So how did you get started in the building industry? Yeah, again, that's I try to keep a probably what is a long story short. Going through school was probably the start of trying to work out as 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 every young kid does what their professional direction will be. For me, as I mentioned earlier, it was it's I had an interest in 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 agriculture. I also had an interest in design, and that didn't necessarily specifically fulfill me with a clear direction. I did go on and do work experience at a couple of architectural practices. The experience there was was not the greatest experience to motivate me to go on to become or pursue that career immediately after leaving school. And, and it actually has set me up to as a business now to ensure that when we do get young kids wanting to come through and do work experience in our business, we have a really clear platform and, and system and process in place for them to get the most out of their time here. So that's been something that's been a really good learning tool for me as a mature person now. But leaving school, I played around with numerous things. I went on and did some landscaping courses. I did horticulture didn't really ever venture into the farming side of things but eventually what happened for me was uh, my I was fortunate that my parents did a alteration addition of their home and and through that and through the introduction of me seeing both the design team and all the building team I, I, I dipped my toe in a couple of courses which ultimately I ended up finishing which were at TAFE in Adelaide and both were four-year courses one of them being architectural drafting and the other one being building technology and to be quite frank the initial part of that course was something that I just felt that this is still not me but then as I got into the building side of things as opposed to the architectural design I really started to get a taste for it and then on leaving that I did some work experience literally unpaid work for one of a family friend builder to work with the trades just to get some hands-on knowledge. And from then on, I was fortunate enough to be offered a job as a supervisor, trainee supervisor within their business, building housing trust was what we called them uh, uh, back then, homes for the government. And at that time, again, I was very fortunate, literally being thrown in the deep end, but also uh, provided some guidance by the housing trust had their own clerk of works or own supervisors. And I was fortunate to have someone effectively ride side saddle with me for the time to, in, to be able to really pick up on the skills that I needed to. 
So that was really the point that I really started to experience what I thought, I'm going to make a career of this and, and I'm really enjoying it. I enjoy it from the technical, structured process point of view, but I also, and I still do enjoy it because of the people that we work with and uh, we're very fortunate to have some awesome people in our industry. Can you tell us a little bit about your business, Urban Habitats? Yeah, so Urban Habitats was really born out of perhaps not the vision of where I see it now or even where I see it going. Urban Habitats was born out of an idea of me being tired of building fairly cookie-crunching sort of homes for somebody else to think that there's a time and place now for me to step out and do my own thing. So after three years of previously working uh, for the Housing Trust Builder, I stepped out. I traded under my own name for a short time as a sole trader to really understand what it was like to be self-employed. So that was effectively just job American design and construct. And I got my work through word of mouth through, back then it was sending letters to people that I knew and networks to try and uh, promote what I was doing. And I was fortunate to be able to get some work from then. Soon after that, though, we realised, uh, I realised that uh, it was time to incorporate, get serious, and, and that's when in 1999 we established, I established Urban Habitats. Urban Habitats focused back then and still is now to be primarily an architectural design and building business. Whilst we actively still work with some great external designers and architects, primarily our, our work is, is our own design work that we then filter through obviously onto our building sites. I think the reality for me, as I said, starting out was more so just focused on getting a business that would be would work, would pay me a wage, which is a lot of what a lot young people look to do when they start out on their own is like, can I just get a job out of this? And that was great. But then as I matured and, and as I had more people become involved in my business, I soon realised we needed to make it far more than that. So when you when you shifted out into Jock American design and construction, what, what scale of work were you doing? Yeah, the, the, well, the first project that I took on was a small house, funnily enough, not dissimilar in scale to some of the houses that I was used to building for the housing trust. But, but at that point in time, I didn't feel I could be too choosy in the type of work. So it ranged from that small house to alterations and additions to small veranda back ends to some landscaping work and, and some internal repaints. And then as we got more established and people became more comfortable with us, it progressively grew into more larger projects, multiple projects um, and even multi-unit development sites. Right. So if you guys are, if you guys with urban habitats now are doing a lot of design and construction work how much work are you putting into design you know how much detail are you going into Mm, mm. So designs come a long way for for us. As I mentioned, I'm passionate about the whole design and I think that's an important pick-up and takeaway for anyone potentially listening to this and wanting to look to start their own business or may have already is passion in your industry or your profession will certainly help to 
go a long way into ensuring an element of success in your business. It's obviously not the only thing, but it certainly goes a long way. So the design side of things has come a long way where initially most of our drawings um, were done on a drawing board. Now they're all done on CAD. Now they're all 3D modelled. But the design for us takes on a couple of pathways or a couple of priorities. One of them is creating some designs that are inspirational and really capture the way that people want to see themselves living and perhaps even help them to see how they might live. But not just that, to me, it's about creating relationships and creating confidence in our clients that that we get to work with them, we get to sit alongside them and listen and, and hear them how they want to live and see how they live and come up with a formula being a plan elevations finishes that suits all of that and and then working um, back to ensure that it meets their budgets so that by the time we enter into a building contract we've probably spent anywhere between three to six to twelve and maybe even longer working with these clients and getting to know them and so by the time we do hit the building site I think the big advantageous is we know each other and we've got a really close working collaborative relationship to then delve into what is the expensive part uh, of um, the process, the building. So, so it would be safe to say that, that, I mean, not only is that a process of trying to extract from a client a, a scope that's doable because, I mean, let's face it, we're always dealing with people who are less, well, generally we're dealing with people who are less experienced than we are. They might only do this once in a lifetime, whereas we're doing it every day. Yes. You've, you've already built up rapport and trust. So by the time you get into construction, there's, al- there's already a really solid relationship there. Is that that's what you were saying? Absolutely, yes. And and, and you touched on it then, Max. It's also about educating them. Not all clients come to the table. Well, I'll say this, every client is different and, and, and not everyone has experienced a build process before. More often than not, they haven't. So they come to it with an element of ignorance. And it's a big passion for me to be able to sit with them and educate them about the process and educate them about where they're going to spend their money and and why that particular detail is important to me in the home, but it might come at a cost or it might not. And I'm a big believer that if they understand that and there's a level of transparency, they're far more far more driven to to buy into the process and and that ultimately provides with a positive outcome. Do you, do you find the clients now? Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're at a time where everyone's heavily influenced by television. You know, we've had grand designs. We've had a whole bunch of other television shows. Did, are people learning the lessons? Oh, God, I, I was waiting for you to say the block as well, which, which is always normally the first one that comes to mind. But are they learning the lessons? Look, I think so. What we are challenged by is there's so much information available to our clients now, and that's obviously mostly online or through 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 TV. And, and so one of our big challenges in fairness is keeping in front of them, keeping in front of the knowledge curve to ensure that we are the ones uh, wherever possible being the provider of information. But but in saying that, as I touched on, for me, 
that's it's not critical because we do generally promote a collaborative approach and the collaborative approach should then encourage our clients to bring their ideas, their discoveries, their their details um, or their materials to the table and offer them as an idea. And, and on the occasion, we get stuff that actually is really good and we're able to bring it in and then use it on future jobs as well. Now, I'm going to, I think I'm going to take you back in time and I wish I had some good sound effects to do it. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to know about, well, I'd like to know about when you first decided to run your own business and what, what, what were the triggers? Yeah, so the triggers were really the motivation to do something for myself in the first instance, to step out and be able to be in charge of my own destiny, which sounds a bit grandiose, but the reality of it was that in, being in charge of my own destiny just simply meant that I could pick and choose what I wanted to do. And, and, and in this instance, it enabled me to pursue my design interests and so that was ultimately what really drove me more so than the idea of creating my own income stream through my own building operation to be able to pursue design and build stuff that I'm really excited to build was ultimately the underlying drive behind why I did it. What I quickly realised, though, was through that passion, people saw that and people bought into it. And the business for me, which was fortunate, became a fairly quick success through through the, the passion and, and some of the simple marketing opportunities that I did early on. So was your first project when you went out on your own, was it, did you do the design as well as the construction? I mean, we spoke about the, a house. That's a good question because no, <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. It was purely a contract build in that instance. And, and, and that's an interesting takeaway too because the design and construction process for us to really hit pay dirt for one of a better description, which is building a home. And the design side of things as a standalone business isn't the greatest financial income stream for us if it was just simply to be standalone. As I mentioned, the greater thing for me as a business is to build the relationships and create some other massive benefits for us through the confidence that our clients have to be able to manage costs with the client is where we get some of the benefits from the design. But in that instance, and so, and that takes time is what I was really going to. And so for me starting out, it was more so looking at what can I do to get some stuff to start earning an income and the opportunity presented itself to price this house and uh, was fortunate enough to, to be able to build it fairly early on into the, the venture of uh, Jock Merrigan Design and Construct at that point in time. And, and how did that opportunity come about? That was, again, through the word of mouth and through the letter drop that I did. It literally came through, I think I did 100 letters through to family, friends, colleagues, schoolmates, all sorts of stuff, and, and it literally just dropped out of that. that. That's an interesting thought process right there. What prompted you to go about doing it that way? I felt that my network was probably strong enough that something would drop out of it, and, and if nothing else... Adelaide's a small enough place that, you know, word of mouth is a really strong means of, of generating work. And I felt that 
oh god i had look generally I, I had nothing to lose so the reality was let's give it a crack and let's start the conversation and and let people know what i'm doing they might not not even know what i'm or might not have any work for me to do but at least they're then aware of me then that conversation starts happening amongst their friends those sorts of things and and something might drop out of it and and i must say that's been the underlying basis of a lot of uh, marketing that we've done over the years with urban habitats i've heard the term used commonly the call to action type of marketing well the rea- reality for us is none of a, none of our marketing or advertising, if we've done it, has been genuinely call to action. It's more so been to constantly reinforce brand awareness for us. And, and I suppose that those little those letters back then were the start of creating the brand awareness. I'm really interested in it because for me, it's a very uh, it seems to be a very one that seems quite formal. The thought that you might present a letter to people but it seems like a really good use of existing networks Mm. and I mean it's not something that people you know people nowadays are thinking oh well I'll just put it on social media becomes very casual and I wonder on one hand whether this this formal approach is a really good way to get a bit of serious engagement with a network that you already have I'm I'm yeah it's it's a really good question because you know you you're right because I, I suppose and this was in the late nineties that I would have been doing that, that then and 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 even email wasn't really finding any level of great traction back then so for for me it probably was um, not even a question it was more so my only real means apart from doing some serious investment in you know radio or something like that which yeah, was never yeah, going yeah. to happen so the the letter was something that uh, seemed to be the most direct means of communication the the reality now is that there are so many options for us to choose from and social media is a great one but as you would see we're we're all inundated by various images of people trying to get your business in some way or another and and how you break through that is is i suppose the key to a successful campaign and that that's something that i suppose good marketing businesses uh, are always looking for the next next breakthrough I got to say, I love it. I think, I think that for me, this is that that point right there is going to be such an interesting takeaway for this because mm. I, I think social media is so casual, it's so temporary, and you know, I don't remember the last time I received a meaningful letter. So yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe yeah. the young builders out there will throw some nice formal letters out when they're looking to get started to an existing network. Yeah, and then, um, then the question begs: is a handwritten letter? I mean, when was the last time you got a handwritten letter? It's um, uh, um, I, I would think the default would be to type it, and yes, that looks professional, but I don't know. It's it gone are the days where you see beautiful handwritten letters or handwritten notes, or very, very far and few and far between. But I, I think the type letter is probably the way to go, just from a professional sense. But I suppose if we're questioning it, imagine a a, a beautiful handwritten letter. If you've got someone that's able to do that, it'd be amazing. I can just see my my. I get letters fairly regularly from my seven year old. He, um, <laughs> they're usually a mixture of words and hieroglyphics, usually phonetic. It's they're, they're fun. 
Yeah. A quick side note to that letter story, which is just one which was something that was really rewarding for me. Last year, Urban Habitat celebrated 20 years since its incorporation. And and through that, we had a, a great celebration and a, and a night where we got all of our uh, current and past clients, family, friends, and, and really sort of reflected over the 20 years. One of my good mates dragged out of his cupboard the letter that I sent. Yeah, yeah. So we had that as a record, which was great to see. He kept it as a uh, – he was very proud of it, actually. He's a good enough mate to to be able to sort of say those sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a proud moment for him to be able to show that to me on the night, which was which was lovely to see. Well, that would be a great piece of social history to say, oh, look, I got this letter from you when you weren't this person. Yes. Uh, Yeah, correct. Very cool. So I'm going to change gears on us and we're going to get businessy. So tell me, who was your first employee? I don't necessarily want their name or specifics. What was their job? So the step up for me, and this is a really interesting note to, 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 to take away, is as a, as a self-employed sole trader in some instance and then moving into a, a company but still only having one employee being myself, you do everything and you learn to do everything. So you're managing sites, you're estimating, you're doing accounts, you're doing all those sorts of things. What I found in the business at that point in time is our workload was very lumpy and so I would be busy on-site building and then I'd lose traction through new work coming through because I'm too busy building and vice versa so when I'm off the when I was when I was uh, pricing or doing the estimating and admin I wasn't so much focused on the building so the thing that quickly came apparent to me as the business started to grow was the grow was the logical person was someone to take on a role on the building site so as a as a supervisor so my first person in a full-time role, was a supervisor. I did ultimately and potentially before that employ a, a bookkeeper and I think that's a worthy note just to sort of hone in on because there are people out there that promote themselves as being bookkeepers who actually don't understand the true ins and outs of accounting practice and I think that's a really good takeaway that and lessons I've learned. I've had people that said they're bookkeepers but completely misread the understanding of liabilities and debtors and all those sorts of things and general journal entries and create a shambles that then mislead the accuracy of your accounts to the point that it's a real effort to try and bring them back in line. And and so whilst I thought I had the right person being the part-time bookkeeper, what I found over a period of probably 12 or 18 months is they weren't actually doing or didn't necessarily have the skill basis to do what I needed them to do. Yes, they could do data entry, but beyond that, then there was a greater reliance on someone with a far better skill and that's the one thing that I've not one thing that's one of the many things that I've learned along the way ensure that you've got good accounts and and someone behind you to support you in that role and ensure that your data entry is done regularly and ensure that your bank reconciliations are done regularly and what I mean by regularly it should be done no more than weekly and don't just assume that the amount in the bank is reflective of where you stand through your accounting reports because if it's not being reconciled, it's more often than not there can be a massive difference. I think everyone who's 
in the industry or been in industries had experience with what you're talking about. Cash flow can be a real challenge and it can be a real trap. You spoke about you employing someone and essentially at some point realizing that 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 wasn't the employee that you needed. How did you? How did you? How did you find out? And mm. then how did you get the right person? Yeah, it's actually a very hard question to answer really clearly. But and if I answer them in the way that you've questioned it is firstly how did I find out look literally through sitting down with my accountant at the end of the financial year and realizing how much more back work they needed to do to bring my accounts up to speed and then realizing that some of their entries were wrong realizing that they hadn't reconciled bank accounts for a certain amount of time and look I was fortunate in that time the business was 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 profitable so and and it was going well so I didn't have a a business that was mediocre and so managing cash flow in the early days was less important than it is now. So the reality of finding out whether that person was the right or wrong person, it came very early on through that critique phase of um, my accountant coming on board. The transition behind that was was a natural one. It was fairly easy to move them on. We then went to a effectively a certified bookkeeper that was authorised by my accounting practice who reported to not only me but directly to my accountant and the accountant then activated a more stringent review process on their behalf to ensure that our accounts were being regularly updated. So that great gave me really great reassurance. Finding the right person, I mean, that's part way of finding the right person was through a referral through my accountant. Look, again, referrals are like we get our own work. If you get a referral for someone, that is generally a really good start to the conversation. I'm a big believer on face-to-face conversations, speaking candidly about what we do, what they want to do, what they do external to work, and then understanding their background as to whether they're the right pe- people for the role. And, 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 and again, that could be skill-based. It might not be skill-based. Sometimes the personality uh, and the motivation is enough to get them in our door to be able to train them up as opposed to having bad habits that we've got to um, train them out. Now, if I can just take you back, you, you said that you may have got someone to do the books part-time, but your first full-time employee mm. was someone who could work on the building side of things. Were they, a, were they a builder? Were they a carpenter? And why did you think that the building side of things was the first place that you could put someone? Yeah, I just felt that that was the one that was demanding, firstly, most of my 24-7 time, if that makes sense. You know, you get the random calls at all hours and I felt that I could probably control my day better by giving that that role to someone that was purely focused on delivering the building works. So that was part of the decision. The person came to me in this instance, as a referral, they didn't have a trade background, but they had experience in the industry and 
whilst in hindsight was their experience enough for me to really release them at the time and let them become very self-motivated and 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 free to do their own work probably not but there became a personality issue and I don't necessarily think that it was more so through skills it was more so through external circumstances that in that 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 potentially led them to moving on to another opportunity which was very much a mutual decision at that point in time but again that came through referral word of mouth sat down with them met them talked about their experience it all sat well and then through their time working with me their circumstances changed and and that led for obviously a change in employment interesting so did you make any mistakes and if so tell us tell us about them you know i'm interested in things that as you look back might make you cringe yeah, and I, well, I was smiling when you referenced that, funnily enough, because uh, I think you look back on them and, and you sort of think, gosh, we got through them. And, and the reality of it is I still have a business that's very successful, um, it's got a great reputation, and that's because we managed our mistakes and, and we have mistakes across, you know, we'll ha- we have mistakes not regularly, but we have them enough. And in the building industry, we're dealing with so many moving parts that you're ignorant if you think you're not going to get mistakes. And so for me, the big takeaway is how you manage your mistakes, how you deal with your mistakes. I can give you a couple. And and, and fortunately, again, the business has got a a balance sheet, and this is something important to recognise, is to retain some profits within the business so that you do, if you do have these mistakes, you've got the depth to be able to financially support some of those mistakes because more often than not, some of those mistakes can cost you money. Some of them can cost you considerable money. And to be able to be confident as a business owner to say, we're going to own this mistake and we're going to get on and fix it and then move on so that we can look at blue skies, then I think that's a really good way of dealing with stresses within your business, knowing that you'll get through it and it won't wreck you. It might cost you money, but you'll move forward and you'll keep going. And this will be a really positive part for the client to pick up on to say, look, these guys made a mistake, but gee, they managed it well and they owned it. They got on and did it. What's a really good example? Uh, that, look, the, the, the one that comes to mind, which somewhat have hesitation even talking about it, but it's, it, it's, such, a, it's such a good one to sort of reference for us as a business. And, and that was, again, through our business, we have established some pretty clear processes about how we get things signed off on. In this instance, this was a swimming pool that we put in we had a sign-off process through there. There was one part of the process that was missed and that was the final sign-off by the client of the final layout of the pool. And what I mean by the final layout is it was indicatively shown as to what where the deep end was and where the shallow end is, but that was quite the opposite of what the client was anticipating. Before we move into the next part of Jock's interview, Here's a quick message from our episode sponsor. Whilst you may not have installed the pool completely the wrong way around, there are always going to be times in your business when things go wrong, and the right insurance cover can help you manage these risks. Did you know that Master Builders has its own insurance broker? It's called Master Builders Insurance Brokers. Not the most original name, but easy to remember. They are a leading broker in the building and construction industry. They use their national muscle to leverage great value for money insurance arrangements. 
keeping premiums down and policy coverage broad. Their brokers are experienced in the building and construction industry and are happy to help you understand, select and manage the right insurance cover for your business. So if you're a builder and want more than just an insurance broker, visit Master Builders Insurance Brokers at mbib.com.au. Now let's find out what happened with that pool. Is it was indicatively shown as to what where the deep end was and where the shallow end is, but that was quite the opposite of what the client was anticipating. And there was conversations had prior to that that needed to be picked up on and through the transition of the guys on site, it wasn't picked up. And long the short of it is we pulled a pool, we poured or sprayed a pool that had the deep end where the shallow end should have been and vice versa. And so that was a pretty stressful time as me as a business owner because at that immediate moment, I knew that there was an element of ownership that we needed to take on. What I didn't know is what it was going to cost us to fix it. The upside of it is I told the client that whatever needs to be done, we will do, and we did it. And it, and it meant significantly breaking down part of the pool shell to re-establish the levels that they wanted to do. So it was a real exercise, but I... I, I can now very much see that client know full well, very comfortably, that we did everything we could to get that client's uh, requirements correct, and and they're completely wrapped and one of our biggest advocates for our business. So, what might have cost me a significant amount of money back then, I know very comfortably that it's paid for itself through word of mouth and recommendations going forward. So that's probably Ooh. you know the big one that comes to mind. We've had other ones and other challenges and, and, and some of those mistakes simply like employing the wrong people and how you manage them out without it creating a snowballing effect. And, and, and they're, they're really important things just to, in my mind, stop, pause, reflect, if need be, get advice, don't react. When I think any person in a business or professional sense elevates to a point that they start yelling at someone, Things have declined enough that you need to have a really good assessment about what the relationship's all about and step away from it till it cools down. So one of my philosophies is there is no need to elevate in conversation unless you're literally at your wit's end with someone and they're on their way out. And then you yeah. might do that just to try and give them one last opportunity. But that's really a last, last hurrah. There's a lot of stuff to unpack out of everything you just said there, John. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and actually want to have a crack at unpacking some of it. Yeah, don't so, think too much about the swimming pool because I've just just stopped my therapy for it and I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well I think one of the things I, I want to do is listening to that, you know, one of the takeaways I'm getting from it was, yeah, that's that's hard. And there was a few things in there that, that need to be noted. One is that you own it. Mm. And I think only, look, for, for, this is a challenge for everyone. It's not just the building industry. Owning a mistake is, that that's, can be hard work. It can be hard work for a number of reasons. And whilst that might be, it, it, it might translate into a financial burden, and I'm sure it did. Mm. But in when you tell me that those same clients also singing your praises, I've got to say that that, that looks a lot like a reputational investment to me. 
Completely, you know, and you can look at it in all sorts of different ways and that, that's certainly part of the way that I try to turn a negative into a positive is, is um, you know, that's a pretty significant investment. You, you, but, but if you step up and own it and get on with it, it would be very rare for it not to pay you back some way along the way. And maybe that's just the old saying of paying it forward or whatever and maintaining an element of positivity in whatever you do. I could be wrong, but that's potentially a a part way of how I look at my business and I suppose the day-to-day view on the world for me. I did want to pick up on what's really important and, and that's, you know, owning something is really important but also saying no is just as important and 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 saying no is a completely different trigger or or, or to a to a client conversation and 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 can create potentially create a wave that 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 needs to be managed very carefully but I do think there are some clients whether we like it or not who will try and push every extent of value out of your project whether it be allowed for and or not and I think as a business owner one thing that I have come to learn is yep it's always important to give a bit having a client that sleeps well at night and and feels as though they've got a bit also ensures you that you get some good sleep at night as well but but there are times where you do need to step up and say no and what I would suggest and recommend out of that through my experience is just um really consider what the outcomes might be to know that if you were to do that, what might the repercussions be and does it need to be from a contractual uh, dispute type of um, arbitration, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you think you're heading down that path, I think the, 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 the reality of, of it is if you start heading down that path, the sooner you trigger it, the better for all parties. Don't let it drag on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It. Oh, yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm ag- agreed. Mm. Um. So you've made a mistake. You're going to rectify this mistake, and it's going to cost you money. Now, hopefully, you don't have that on every job. But mm. how? Do, what do you do about having a war chest for dealing with things that don't quite go to plan? Yeah, so there's two ways of looking at it. And as a mature business, you start looking at retention of profits rather than paying out all the dividends, those sorts of things. And and that can only best be dealt with by the business owner and and your financial advisor. In, in our instance, it's that's certainly part of it. It's it's ensuring there's some sort of little cash resource that that does accommodate that. But the other part is having some vision on your cash flow so that potentially there is some element of positive cash flow and cash reserves that you can manage blips like that and and hopefully the profit that is eaten into by a circumstance like the one we've just described doesn't completely put the the, the project into the negative and that there's still profits being generated and so that you know there are still some cash reserves to, to draw upon so what we're being seen also now in reality is the businesses need to have a strong balance sheet to support their homeowners warranty limitations and so having that has a two part to play in fairness it supports your your homeowners warranty limits but it also provides you with some reserves to be able to ride through some of those bumps yeah and 
So just as an example, if you were a business, and I'll just use round figures just because that would be easy to think about. If you were a business and you were turning over $100 and you were thinking, okay, so I'm turning over $100 a year, what, what kind of a number would you consider having sitting in the bank account to deal with mm. potential problems that might appear? Yeah, yeah. Well, the immediate number or percentage that comes to mind is 20%. I think that's probably a good baseline to sort of consider, hold back 20% every year. And, and that 20% might be 10% for cash reserves, 10% for business development and growth, those sorts of things. They're really broad numbers. I think it's all circumstantial. The other thing is, you know, most good building companies generally generate positive cash flows through some phase of the building contract. More often than not, if it's a master builder's contract, you might see that happen at the early phase of a building contract and then you have to earn your way out of it. Now, that can be really good, but it can also be a real trick because you can get ahead of yourselves in your profits and those sorts of things and think you're a lot better than what they are. And and, and I'm not saying that, that that's, that's the obvious. It's not always that easy. But having positive cash flow can also help those cash reserves. Utilising those cash reserves so that potentially are they going to sit in a low interest bank account or are you going to do something else with them that they become more active? That's a decision for each individual party. But the important thing is that you can easily access that cash when you need it. And then at the end of the financial year, once you've done all your work in progresses, if that's what you do, and work out what you've genuinely made for the year, then perhaps that's when you can take your dividends for all your hard-earned money. But up until then, my thoughts is to try and manage it really carefully so that you you don't get ahead of yourself in taking money out that potentially you haven't earned. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So what do you think the most important things a builder or a trade needs to think about when starting out on their own? Yeah, it's really important to think about that. I, I think you need to be really clear on what your motivation is to do it to start off with, in my opinion. If it's purely about making the bit quick buck and I'm going to be like the next big builder you know, down the road and look how easy he's got it, he's driving the fast car and all those sorts of things, you need to check yourself. You need to stop and go, this is going to be a long journey and, and I think that's another important thing. This is not a short turnaround success story. This is going to be a long journey and and prepare yourself for that and prepare yourself for hard work. As I said, be clear on what you want your successes to look like and who your clients need to be and, and then really target them. And then once you've sort of got to that point, I think the other thing that's important is is seek some advice. I think it's a big ask for anyone to go out and set a business up by themselves and then think they're going to know everything off the back of that. Having some good structures behind you early on, and it might only be, again, if you're a sole trader or or a one-off person or a, a small business maybe employing one person, you might think systems and processes aren't that important, but they quickly will become so. And then when you delegate, then all of a sudden they become the norm as opposed to the not norm and having to dream them up along you go, along the way as you go. So having those systems and processes early on is a really good thing to set yourself some goals to do. 
as I said, seeking advice, whether it be your accountant, whether it be that there's numerous coaching opportunities that I think have been really well valued in the marketplace that provide some really good guidance for young builders starting out and or mentoring. And, and, and I'll reference both those latter two because for me when I started out, the word business coaching wasn't really around at that point in time and the mentoring side of things, I didn't really have anyone that I could feel that I could align myself to mentor me through my growth. So I, I effectively made a lot of it up along the way. The experience that I got at the previous builder was limited. They didn't really have systems and processes in place in short. So it was everything I had to make it up along the way. I, I have had and still do have now a business coach that I regularly meet with. And I also now have a person that helps me to mentor some greater vision about our business. And I think all of those things are really important to, to have to ensure your vision stays in line with the expected outcomes and without your you getting ahead of those goals or losing sight of what the critical path is i think those things are are really important the the other thing that for me was really important is having a good backup software or estimating program because let's face it, if your estimating's wrong at the start, well, you're stuffed before you even get on site. And so having a really good estimating program is critical in the success of the business. Now, again, that could be someone setting up a very detailed or simple, but it needs to be really have the information to plug into it, Excel spreadsheet, which is certainly what I had to start off with. I've now gone to a more cloud-based software where multiple members of my staff can access the important information as they need to and that's certainly been a transition and a big transition and it's and it's been a big learning curve because there's a lot of opportunities out there so finding the right one is important but spend the time and make sure that you 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 do that because it does help to set the business up for future growth so I think that leads really nicely into my next question. So as, as your business grows, there comes a time you, you've started out, there comes a time to get off the tools and start working on the business um, mm. as opposed to working in the business. Can you tell us about when that happened for you and how did you know it was time? Yeah, so very mindful the distinction between being on the tools or in the business because I don't have a trade background and one of the things that my first boss and reality is only boss said to me at the beginning he said he didn't want me being on the tools if I was to be a supervisor for him he wanted me to be a supervisor and not get not get challenged or taken away from the focal point by going and cleaning a site or digging a hole or something like that. So in that instance, I've always had a focus not to be on the tools. But then there's the reference about being in the business as opposed to on the business. And uh, I think for any business owner, it's important to recognise that through the entire life of a business, whether it be in its infancy or whether it be 20 years or 30 years down the track, that there are times that you still need to be in the business and then you need to be on the business. And 
obviously the career reference about on the business is or over the business is is effectively you know hovering up looking down over everything that's going on and making some as critical assessments about what's efficient about about how you're running your business but also where the business is going and what opportunities there are. So stepping away from the day-to-day grind of the business is something that's been really critical for me to ensure clear level thinking when I do step back into the business. And that might be I do a quarterly uh, catch-up with my business coach and now I have a business partner and and, and we strategize not just the next month, the next three months, the next six months. We review our business plan and we make sure that where our commitments are being met and our KP- uh, we set ourselves KPIs and we make sure that we're meeting those KPIs. So having someone that checks you is a really good thing and that's where my business coaches come into play in that instance. It's effectively like a non-executive board director potentially. They come back in and they say, have you done this? Where are you at with that? And, and potentially I probably wouldn't be held as accountable if I didn't have that. So those sorts of things are really, really valuable for us to have. We do an extended break where we go away for a couple of days. We go somewhere remotely and we sit down and completely strategize and review the year, but also forecast the year in advance. And all those things are really valuable and just thinking about where the opportunities might be. And, and, you know, patting yourself on the back if you've had some successes as well. You spoke about now having a partner. Mm. Um, is was that something? So that that clearly has happened since since the start of the business. How, how did that happen? Yeah, I'm really glad that you actually focused on that because that was was a point that I wanted to raise. Um, it happened through, in some part, me wanting a business that was much more than me. So when you start out a business on your own, there's perhaps some 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 self-fulfilling pathways that you take that you know it's my business and uh, something I created and all that sort of stuff and I want to leave behind a legacy and all that sort of wah wah and maybe I thought that for a while but then I also thought I want this to be someone something greater than me I don't want it to be known for Jock Merrigan I want it to be known for urban habitats and I didn't necessarily want to have a business that when I got to the end of my professional career that I stepped away from it and either I gave it to my children to run or or or, or I closed the doors which we hear a lot of stories so I had a, a young fella 10 years my junior work for me come up through the ranks of studying architecture funnily enough then wanting to go into project manager he worked for me for eight or nine years I could see that he was a really valuable person in my business so he started out a role as laboring went on to supervising And I could see he had all the right personality traits, albeit we're different. I could see that he had the right skill set to add some real values to the business, not just in his existing role, but beyond that. So he was interested in um, buying some equity. I was interested in seeing a succession plan start to fall into place. And he very much has become part of that. So the thing that I've been very mindful of in my business is... In, in our business now, I should correctly put it, is, is a greater plan beyond me and, and that doesn't necessarily mean there's an there's a immediate pathway for my children or even his children to fill a role within this business. 
it's it's we've actually set up some guidelines around how that might happen if it did happen the bigger plan is to provide people that are interested and worthy of it to have access to equity and ownership in the business and not be a closed shop operation that doesn't allow for that and so that's been a good transition it's fella's name's josh semler he's been with he's been a business partner in urban habitats for I think we talked about only yesterday five years and he's certainly been responsible and supporting of the growth that um, we've achieved over over that time and, and, and before that as well. So that's been a really good thing and, and again, something that I would certainly encourage people to, to be open-minded about. So if I'm a young builder looking to go out on my own, what's the main bit of advice you give me? Yeah, again, just to, to, to recap, young builder, looking to go out on by yourself, um, be clear on what why you want to do it, seek advice, put some good systems in place, seek advice from both financial advisors but perhaps also business advisors, make sure you get the right structures in place um, and then surround yourself with good people. And, and what I mean by that is your business is only as good as the people around you and the people around you more often than not in a building company are your trades. Ensure you look after them. Don't screw them. A lot of builders gets, get, get caught up in the idea that the cheapest price is the best price. We all know it's not. And, and if you have pride in your work and we do and we pride ourselves on the quality and the detail that we provide, then we need to have trades that do the same. So ensure you've got like-minded people working alongside you. Quality, as I touched on, is an underlying assumption, albeit people tend to let it go and go, it doesn't matter. I always use the same what would you do if it was your house? And that that probably puts the baseline of the the outcome. I think always try to be fair, fair on any level, fair to a trade, fair to your client, give a bit to get a bit back, those sorts of things. You'll, it will, it, look, it might not pay you back immediately, but it will pay you back at some time. Be trusting and, and really emphasise trust and, and that's the honesty side of things, owning the mistakes, all those sorts of things. You need to earn your trust. You need to earn your place at the table. Be very clear on that. Communication. Make sure your communication is very clear, constant. I don't think you can ever hear enough from from someone who's building your your home. It's probably the biggest investment other than buying the home or buying the piece of land that they'll ever do. So it's a serious investment for them and it's probably stressful. So communication can really help them with that. And that all rolls into probably a bigger sphere of being professional, being professional and, and and touching on all of those points will go a long way to having clients that hail your praises every time they think of you and when they sit in their home to think that the experience was really great. You know, don't be one of those people that is the 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 the, the, the builders that the media wants to catch because they've done somebody in or, or done a bad turn or <laughs> no because those and, and and to be those people are the people that take shortcuts and and there's there's no great outcome to a shortcut all right and what was the best bit of advice anyone gave you there, I don't think there's one thing that I could particularly lay my hand to the, the one that does sit home with me is that if you're going to be a builder, be a builder. Don't be a carpenter, be a builder. So getting back to that, 
if you're if you're on the tools, then you're on the tools. If you're being a project manager builder, then stay off the tools. That's probably one bit of advice which has been good for me because it's been it's given me great clarity. There will always be some default positions about you know potentially having a day where you need a mental a stress-free day where perhaps getting on the tools might allow for you to do that that can be really good the other bit of advice for me and it's perhaps not so much that has been told to me but what I actually now feel is uh, be fair let people be autonomous in their roles where they can be because you'll get a better result from them and and, and and surround yourself with good people. All right. If there was a builder that wanted to improve their skills in business, are there any good resources that you'd direct them to? Yeah, without sort of being mindful or, or uh, promote, sounding like I'm promoting the people that support this podcast, but the master builders generally are a great resource for builders to be able to really improve their skills. Having the resources of both professional people that can give them advice, so getting back to some of the other things that I've mentioned along the way, but also the courses that they have. And then further to that, there are great opportunities for networking as well. And so some of my greatest learnings or, or, or just reinforced learnings has been through talking amongst my peers in the industry who are good blokes who are have and, and ladies who are happy to share their learnings, noting that they might be competitors, but we're all in this together and and we can all learn from each other. So there's some really good things to learn from reaching out to your peers and your networks within those peers and the associations to to help you to learn. The other things are the coaching or the mentor pathways. There are some really good coaching groups that provide some specific systems and processes for builders specifically and 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 they would be ones that I would certainly encourage to look into you don't need to do them forever but they can certainly help to set your business up for a really good baseline to to spring from all right in in, in closing out is there something I should have asked you I think you've covered it all. We've been pretty sort of detailed and we've moved around a fair bit. But look, I'll just touch on the business growth for urban habitats because you go into a business with some ideas in mind and, and then you effectively get to a point where we employ 12 people and the, 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 my day-to-day role within a business has now changed quite considerably. And I, I think what it's just important to be mindful of is just be open-minded to that. Don't be pig-headed about the pathway that you need to go, but be open-minded. But set yourself goals because goals that might seem unrealistically in five years' time or three years' time, and those goals might be turnover, they might be staffing requirements, they might be a building opportunity. Put them down on paper, put them out there, and you'll be surprised how often you'll reach them and you'll check yourself against that. So I think that's something that's really worthwhile utilising as a business. Jock, we're we're done. Thank you for your time. That That was totally intriguing, very interesting. There's some amazing stuff that's come out of that. Thanks for your time, Jock. That's awesome. Pleasure.
I have to say that my favorite takeaway from that interview was how important it is to own your mistakes and how Jock was able to take that issue with the pool and turn it into an asset. And now that client is one of his biggest supporters. What did you take away from it, Robert? Yeah, my takeaway is there's uh, many ways to build a small business as you start out. But really, I guess, um, making sure you look after the customers you have as you build your base. I thought it was really interesting how Jock's clearly recognised that it's good to have some support. Even when you're you know, running your business, it's good to have mentors and people that you can talk to about bits in your business that could use some work or bits that you didn't even know could use some work. And you're finding that out by talking to people with other experience. How did you find that, Rob? Yeah, I think if you knew early on that it's, you can get a lot of benefit about talking talking with your peers. So finding a platform you can do that and through obviously Master Builders is a very good way in the early days where you just give up a little bit of time and go to a couple of networking events and you get that experience early on. But obviously you can't give up too much time because you're busy out there trying to build your business, but that's invaluable. I would totally agree with what you just said before, Robert. And I, I think that's one of the big takeaways from talking to Jock. I mean, Jock is a really active MBA member and you can tell that he has got a lot from talking with his peers, finding out where people have made mistakes or what people have done well and how he can incorporate that into his business. And I guess that's one of the real benefits of being part of the MBA. It sure is, Max. One thing I'd add to that is as you go on the journey of building your business, then you've got to go on the journey of building yourself and growing. And as you grow, you've got to learn. So you've got to look for new tools because you're taking on new skills as you start employing people. So that's um, one of the things that no one tells you. So yeah, now it's an interesting journey and MBA fills and ticks a lot of those boxes. Now, if you need some help or advice to help your business, make sure to give your local master builders a call or visit our website at masterbuilders.com.au. Thanks for listening. I'm Max Rafferty. Until next time, stay safe.